come today to the last of three sermons on Philippians 4 before we return to our sermon series on a highly intense letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. First Corinthians, we're taking a deep gulp of the fresh air of the Apostle Paul's optimism as we find it at the end of his letter to the Philippian Christians. It's true, of course, that Paul is optimistic even in his letter to the Corinthians. I would have become a total pessimist as pastor of the Corinthian church. I think I might have been tempted to tie an anvil around my neck and jump into the harbor of the Adriatic Sea at the edge of Corinth. But Paul is an optimist, and yet we said that his optimism is a realistic optimism, or an optimistic realism, if you would like to think of it that way. He's in jail when he writes his letter to the Philippians, most likely in Rome. And in chapter 2, we learn that Paul is keenly aware that he might be tried and executed. Now, this is speculation. I'm going to guess at this. I'm only guessing, but I think it's a pretty reasonable guess that Paul had had a particularly deep experience with the Lord that prompted this this overflow of confidence, this galloping joyride, if you will, sailing above the depressing external circumstances in his life and all around him. Not in a stick-your-head-in-the-sand denial of the brokenness of the world, including his own brokenness, but rather in a heightened, intense, and most sweet vision of Christ triumphant over the world's brokenness. Christ, miserably humbled in death, but now triumphant. Christ, pulsating with power, immortal, at the right hand of God. Christ, bending all things, then in Rome, now in Washington, to his good purposes. Christ, using the preaching of the gospel for his good ends, even when some people were preaching it to promote themselves. Paul says, I rejoice even then in chapter 1. Now, Ron doesn't rejoice that Christ knows how to use manipulative preachers because he can write straight with a crooked stick. I get angry and indignant when I sense that spiritual leaders are using the word of God for their own advancement. But Paul seems to see Christ practically on his throne as he writes. He seems to be caught up in contemplation of the outcome of the story. He seems to see with intense clarity the ecstasy that followed the Lord's agony. The Spirit of God seems to me to have opened the eyes of Paul's faith so wonderfully wide that every problem 
got chopped way down to its teeny tiny size next to the magnificent love and strength and unfolding purposes of the risen Christ. The Christ ruling Paul's heart. The Christ ruling the emperor Nero who had just had his mother murdered two or three years before Paul writes this. The risen Christ ruling the planets and the galaxies. And seeing all of that, as Moses did, quote, seeing him who cannot be seen, it just made him happy in the Lord, as it should. Now that's my guess. It's a sheer guess, but I think it's a reasonable guess as to what inspired the intensity of Paul's optimism in this letter. The truth of the matter is that whatever the inspiration, he was on a spiritual high by the mercy of God so tender toward him. But let's look more closely at the optimism we've already mentioned chapter 1, verse 18. I rejoice. He said there, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that, I'm happy. I rejoice. But he brings up rejoicing in the face of hard circumstances again. In chapter 2, he says, this is a bit of a paraphrase, even if my execution turns out to be the price for you coming to faith in Jesus, I am glad and rejoice. And then he says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Then in the opening verse of chapter 3, he says it again. Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, just as an aside, Paul says here, finally, in verse 3-1, but he's not going to stop. He goes on for 29 more verses, and then he tries to grab hold of himself. And in verse 8 of chapter 4, he says it again, finally, but he's still not going to stop. And so another 16 verses come in his letter. It's very comforting for preachers. Well, then we find it again in chapter 4, the text we have been looking at. He says it to the church twice. Verse 4, you have this in your insert inside the bulletin. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then he just repeats himself. And he says, again, I will say, rejoice. Paul is just brimming with a kind of cheerful optimism. But it isn't just rejoice, be happy, because if you wish upon a star, everything will turn out okay in your life. Paul says rejoice in the Lord always. In the Lord. In the one who was tortured and horribly murdered, but who reversed the power of decay in his own body and now rules the empires and the oceans who rules every foot of this fantastically wild and dramatic universe and who pulls into his own good and just purposes every single person who exists, even if they care nothing for him. So six times 
In this short letter, Paul mentions rejoicing. And in five of those instances, he is commanding us, Christians, and saying, rejoice, guys, implying that we are not fools for doing it, even if our life is hard. And we haven't even gotten yet to what is perhaps the most optimistic passage in the whole letter, verse 8 of chapter 4. Now we're going to get to verse 8 of chapter 4 today, but I first want you to see the pattern here in Philippians, the richness of Paul's optimism in Christ. Because if there is hard stuff going on in your life, and there certainly is hard stuff going on around us and all around the world, but if you are anxiety-ridden or are fighting for joy and for hopefulness right now, these two chapters, Philippians 3 and 4, might be a very helpful place for you to camp out for a while. There are six passages in these two chapters where Paul virtually sings the work of Christ and the confidence he has in them. I call them the six pearls of great price in Philippians 3 and 4. And friends, they make a wonderful necklace if you string them together and wear them, as it were, in your mind and heart. The first pearl is in chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. We might title this, Like Christ, In Christ, Sold Out to Christ, Headed for Glory Because of Christ, Come What May. Paul said this about himself, As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in the fellowship of his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What a statement. The second one is in chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. This is the who am I pearl. I am Christ's, and I'm facing forward, not backward. Let me say to those of you who are teens, this is a pearl of great price for you, especially as you are working on the answer to the question, who am I, really? It's a precious truth to hold on to, at least if you trust in Jesus. If you get ripped on Facebook or something like that. Paul wrote, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
In other words, I belong to Christ. That's who I am. Brethren, I do not consider that I have made it on my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Pearl 3 is in verses 18 through 21 of chapter 3. This is the I am a resident alien pearl. I'm on my way to becoming immortal, and Christ is sovereign Lord of the nations, of the world, of the universe, who guarantees my future. There, Paul wrote, those who are enemies of the cross of Christ, their minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. The fourth pearl we might call, I will seek Christ's joy and peace for all that troubles me now, and for the cannibalism of my anxiety. We looked at this last week. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, or as we said last week, perhaps better translated, which transcends all our thinking, that peace will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, the fifth pearl is in verse 8 in chapter 4. This is the pearl of being able to say with confidence, I will set myself in the direction of a God-oriented, inspiring, anxiety-deflating, realistic optimism. And so Paul says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, spoken well of, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And the sixth and last pearl is in verses 11 through 13 of chapter 4. This wonderful and tremendous self-confidence that is a self-confidence in Christ. Whatever Christ calls me to do, hard or easy, I will do. No, He will do in and through me. And so near the end of the letter, Paul says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, And I know how to abound. That is, I know how to live in fat city. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ 
through him who strengthens me. String these pearls together, friends, and wear them. They're wonderful. Well, back to verse 8 of chapter 4. Paul has just said, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God, which transcends all thinking, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We've been looking at these verses, trying to discern any light they shed on ways in which Christians are not different from other people and how they are different. We said last week, and it is clear, Christians like everyone else, we are all prone to anxiety since the fall into sin in the garden. What is different about Christians is the way, at least the way we are supposed to respond to anxiety. When your peace of mind is hijacked by anxiety, and anxiety always eats up your insides, you can turn inward and try to argue yourself out of it with a kind of free-floating optimism. So often that's fairly hopeless. Or you can turn upward. Own the spinning rush of apprehensive thoughts and dump all of it on Christ's shoulders in an act of renouncing your anxiety, thanking God for what is good in your life, then asking Him to send you from heaven His peace. You're not going to win peace in an argument with anxiety. It has to be sent to you from above. That seems to be Paul's point here. And God will honor you, is the promise Paul is making. When you give up on the power of your own attempts to think your way out of anxiety and turn to him. That's the assurance that you will be guarded from outside your head, dizzy as it is, from nervous and destabilizing feelings, impulses, thoughts, all of them speaking, flashing threat of one kind or another. But now in the very next verse here, verse 8, Paul exhorts us to set a focus to our thinking that will give us an even stronger bulwark against a crippling anxiety in the face of what is not as it should be. What is not as it should be in us and around us. A bulwark to be added to our praying. What we have here in this remarkable verse. And it really stands out as a very unique verse in the Apostle Paul. But what we have here, friends, are thoughts to make your heart sing. Now that's the lovely 
title of a great children's devotional book by Sally Lloyd-Jones, Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. And that's what we have here. Finally, brethren, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is well-spoken of, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will then be with you. What a wonderful way to live. But who does this very well? Que cum que sunt vira. It's Latin for whatever things are true. That's the motto of Northwestern University in Chicago. I learned that from Hervey yesterday. Whatever things are true, the first part of verse 8 here. Now the first thing to notice is that Paul also knew the favorite word of the millennial generation in our time, and that is whatever. Notice how general this is, how comprehensive Paul is in showing us what we ought to be focusing on. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is well spoken of, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, clearly, the whatever here can include these things, whatever good God intended for our world. Whatever good is possible in our world, even now, after the rebellion against God, even if it is a good that is not a perfect good. And surely it includes whatever good God has promised still to bring us those who trust in his Messiah and love him and obey him when he returns. That's what we are to focus our attention on. Now, Paul may well be thinking supremely of human ethical behavior here, but it is interesting that he does say, whatever is true, whatever is spoken well of, Whatever is lovely, whatever is excellent, if anything is worthy of praise. And so, friends, surely that means that whatever we find rich and good, true and commendable in created nature, we are to fix ourselves on it and to drink it in. Wherever you see beauty, and loveliness in art and in architecture. You're supposed to be thinking on those things, but yes, supremely. Whatever is good in human behavior, we are to fix our attention on that. Truth without arrogance. Honor without falseness or formalism. Justice but without lovelessness, 
maturity, without the self-righteousness that so often tries to accompany it. Loveliness, without rivalry. What is spoken well of without pride. Excellence, without the destructiveness of perfectionism. And finally, all things everywhere that by the grace of God at work in the world are worthy of being appreciated, praised, without their defects, being whitewashed. These are the things we are to discipline ourselves to focus on. Now, we have to be careful at this point because we can't use Paul's call to optimism to evade responsibility. Kids, you are not allowed to say to your mom or to your dad, hey, I just heard Pastor Ron say last week, you're only supposed to focus on everything good and praiseworthy that I do. Why are you sending me to my room? It doesn't work like that. Paul is a realist. There is a time and a place to focus on what is wrong with me, on what is broken in me, in this church, in you, what is broken in our city, what is broken in Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. There is a place to focus on that too because you can't read the Apostle Paul without also seeing that. But here Paul is saying, also keep this in view. The need to see all things from the vantage point of the victory that Christ has already won. This sounds so optimistic, but Paul is not calling Christians to live in denial, to sort of paste on a Pollyanna smile of optimism. We have way too much of that in our culture already. I've mentioned before Barbara Ehrenreich's 2009 book, Bright-Sided, how the relentless pursuit of positive thinking has undermined America. She lays a lot of blame for that at the feet of the Christian church in a way that you might not guess at. But the optimism that Paul calls us to hear is a realistic optimism. It is an optimism in Christ. And friends, that makes all the difference in the world for how you approach it and think on it. Nevertheless, as G.K. Chesterton insisted, and he could have easily drawn this insight from Philippians chapter 3 and 4, But Chesterton said, and I have pondered long and hard over it because I am so sensitive myself to what is broken. But Chesterton said, for Christians, sadness and grief over the brokenness of the world is much the minor theme in Christian consciousness, tied to smaller, he says, and very specific things while a joyful optimism is the major, the general, 
the overarching theme of our living and thinking, all because of the work of Christ, our Redeemer. One of the best lines in the whole world is from an old Jewish fairy tale that originated in Afghanistan. It's about a dirt poor Jewish peasant, and in the story, he has a very hard life, but he and his wife live with a kind of optimistic hopefulness in God. He has done nothing wrong, he has only acted cleverly, but he has this question put to him, and what are you going to do if the king finds out what you have done? And the peasant answers simply, I don't worry about things that haven't happened yet. I simply trust in God not to abandon me. What a line. I don't worry about things that haven't happened yet. Friends, if that's what God asks of us, then that's what he will give. How badly do you want it? How badly do I? May God grant that by a faithful, day-by-day, baby-step discipline, baby-step to the elevator, baby-step to the difficult classroom, baby step into that challenging relationship, baby step into the current discussion in the church about the relationship between racial issues and the body of Christ and all kinds of other issues. A day-by-day, baby step discipline so that we might be moving toward at least, that peasant's realistic, God-focused optimism. Why? We see so much more. What we see is that Christ has loved us very, very, very much. He has won you, and he has won the future of the world. And nothing and no one is stronger than him and his purposes.